Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today's story is going to be about the attack on the Pan family and how the story unfolds. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive on in. Our story is about the Pan family who lived in Unionville, Markham, Ontario. Bick and Han Pan met and were married in 1979. They had two kids, Jennifer and Felix. Jennifer was born in 1986 on June 17th, and Felix was born three years later in 1989. Jennifer was enrolled in piano classes at age four, and she had a trophy case full of awards by the time she was in elementary. She was pretty much a prodigy when it came to piano. She would get up in the morning, go to school, go to practice, then get home around 10 p.m. that night, do some homework until about midnight, go to bed, and do the whole day over again. The family was of Chinese-Vietnamese descent, so Han worked as a tool and dye maker for a car company, and Bic worked at the same car company, and, and she made car parts there. They were a very financially stable family. They owned a big house with a two-car garage, and Bick drove a Lexus ES300, and Han drove a Mercedes-Benz. They had a savings of over 200000 Canadian dollars, which is equivalent to about 151294 U.S. dollars. Our story really starts in 2010 with the family. At this time, Felix is attending college. He was attending university and majoring in mechanical engineering. Han really wanted his son Felix to have a better life and to design cars, not just assemble them. Jennifer at this time had been practicing figure skating and had really hoped to join the Olympic group. However, in 2010, so shortly before our story really starts, she tore a ligament in her knee and it ended her skating career. Luckily, she had the piano skills to fall back on. And so she was helping teach piano lessons and she was also an award-winning pianist. So from what I've gathered, they're a pretty successful bunch. Oh, yeah. Which... With the Asian culture, it is pretty common that the parents want their children to be more successful. And I'm going to go into that more later with a book that was written about the Asian culture and how strict some of the parents tend to be with wanting their children to be super successful in their lives with their extracurricular activities and their educational lives. I feel like you can see that in a lot of cultures as well, where the parents in theory, hopefully, would want the kids to do better, be better, just to, you know, give them the best they can have. I agree. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a little different in our story, which I'll go into later. Oh, okay. On November 8th, 2010, 24-year-old Jennifer and her parents were at home, and Jennifer went downstairs to say goodnight to her mom, and then went back upstairs to lay down in bed and watch some TV. She was on the phone with one of her friends, and her dad was already asleep when all of a sudden she heard a bunch of commotion coming from downstairs. Now, is Felix living with them at the time as well? No, Felix is away at university. Okay, I knew he was in university. I just wasn't sure if it was close enough that he could be home and go in there or... I honestly didn't see where he was going to school, um, but I do know that he was at home at the time of the event because he was away. The main account of the story really comes from Jennifer, and she stated that three gunmen came into the home 
And that was the commotion that she was hearing downstairs. Jennifer was on the phone as she heard all this commotion and was really confused because she knew her dad was asleep. But her mom started yelling in their native language for her father to come downstairs. And Jennifer was trying to figure out what it was because she said that when her mom started yelling like that, it meant everybody needs to come downstairs like family meeting time. She told her friend that she was going to call him back later and gets off the phone and opens the door to a man standing there with a pistol pointed right at her. The man then takes her downstairs where her mom and dad are both standing there with pistols pointed at them. Jennifer stated that there were three gunmen in the home and when she's telling her account of the story she refers to them as number one, number two, and number three. The one man takes Jennifer upstairs and asks her to give him all of their money. She has $2,500 in Canadian money that she has saved from teaching piano. And she finds another $1,100 in her mom's nightstand that was hidden. So she gives all of this money over to the men. And at this point, the men tie her up to the banister. One of the men ties her hands behind her back with a shoelace and then ties one of her arms to the banister so that she is just stuck there which she actually goes into detail of this in the interview and shows the detectives how she was tied up so that they can have an idea. Jennifer doesn't know this because she's still upstairs, but Bick and Han are actually taken to the basement. The gunmen order them to turn around. They throw blankets over their heads and Bick is pleading with the gunmen to spare Jennifer's life. She's like, please don't hurt my daughter. And they're questioning her money and he's like, we don't have anything. And then Jennifer hears five gunshots go off. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. After the gunshots go off, the men eventually leave the home and Jennifer is left alive, just tied to the banister. She actually has her cell phone on her and she calls 911 and this is her account of the story. What's your name? My name is Jennifer. Someone just broke in? Someone broke in and I heard shots like pops. I don't know what's happening. I'm tied upstairs. Did it sound like gunshots? I don't know what gunshots sound like. I just heard a pop. Do you think your mom is downstairs too? I don't hear her anymore. Please hurry. I don't know what's happening. Oh, ma'am, ma'am, I don't ma'am. know where my parents are. Hello? Hello? So, Abby, what did you think of that 911 call? Because you know I like to analyze them. <laughs> I, I would probably maybe hear more listening a couple times, but after the first listen, it just sounds like a young girl distressed, crying, not really sure what's going on, trying to get help. Exactly. So listening to it is kind of like 
gut-wrenching to hear how like sad and like traumatized this girl is in that moment now did she say her dad was running out onto the lawn so she said she said that my dad's running outside which is something that i thought was super strange that her dad's just running outside is he i don't know if he was trying to run after the gunman or what he was trying to do i do know that he was not in good shape at this moment so he actually had a broken bone near his eye bullet fragments lodged in his face that doctors actually were never able to remove and a shattered neck bone and the bullet had actually grazed his carotid artery so once the police arrive they find jennifer tied up exactly the way she described to the banister and han actually ended up in a medically induced coma and bick had not survived the attack well after hearing that i would assume han was probably running out onto the lawn because or outside because what the heck else do you do i just feel like it's so traumatic like i don't even know how i'd react in that moment i mean it was probably just an instinct and adrenaline taking over just putting him you know when you're harmed in a location whether or not those people are still there i think there's that fight or flight and he probably was just running to get out you know what i mean yeah exactly when police arrive they notice that not a lot is really stolen the cars are there the mercedes and the lexus are both there and there was cash that was on the counter and i didn't find how much there was but there was actually cash on the counter and like a tv and stuff and all this stuff was still in the home and hadn't been stolen well what i found interesting earlier on you said they were asking like where the money was and stuff and han and big maybe saying we don't have anything we don't know what you want it sounds like they probably had a lot of items that would be of some monetary value there i agree i mean all the money that they took was that money that jennifer had given them which totaled a sum of twenty six hundred dollars in canadian money it's interesting that they only took her money it makes me wonder and they didn't attack her i don't know my mind is trying to figure it out, but it's kind of almost like she, in a way, was the target without being the, like, physical target. Exactly. And so I think police kind of saw it that way, too. So they wanted to question her. So they brought her in for questioning. And I have a couple clips that I'm going to play from the questioning. The first one is going to be the cop's main question was, how did you call us when your hands were tied behind your back? And I think it's just because they're trying to cover all their bases. They were like, we're just trying to figure it out. So she's going to explain that in this clip. I want to see how you could physically get your phone out of your waistband. We're obviously going to need to know that. It's very important. We know you made the phone call, but questions are going to obviously raise is that if my hands are bound and I'm against the railing, how do I talk to a 911 operator? Put this in the side that you believe it was in. Great. Turn around. So that only you're looking away from me. You're looking exactly like now here is where the banister is. Put your hands back behind your back. Exactly how you remember they were. Okay. Now, and the, are you restrained from movement? How far can you move your hands from the banister? They tied my upper arm. Yes. Around the banister. Yes. But my hands were bound together. So your hands bound together. And this is the arm that's the, the strings wrapped around against the banister. Okay, so now how can you get to the phone? And how do you make the phone call? 911. Mm-hmm. And do you talk down like that? Yes, I'm yelling at the phone like this. And how can you hear? I turned the volume on max. Yes. So that's exactly the way that you're talking to her against the railing. Mm-hmm. So Abby, I just showed you the clip of Jennifer showing the police how she was 
tied up to the banister. So what are what are your thoughts on that? From the clip, it looks totally possible to me. I was having a hard time visualizing it, so definitely watch that clip. But it makes sense, especially kind of looking at how little and skinny she is. I can see how she could twist around and do the phone call. Yeah, I agree. The cops weren't quite convinced, though. So I'm actually going to play a clip of Jennifer's interview where she talks about her side and what she remembers happening from the attack. And then suddenly I just heard my mom calling for my dad to come down. And that's when I lowered the volume on my TV. And I could hear the voices weren't any voices I was very familiar with. And so I was scared and I couldn't move. I just sat in my room for a while. And then I thought I heard them all let, like leave the top floor and I peered out of my bedroom door. And a guy was there and he came at me and had string in his hands and tied my arms back and said, I have a gun behind your back. Do what I say. If you do what I say, then no one will get hurt. Where is the money? Show me where your money is. I, um, I have still a few a bit of money put aside from when I was waitressing cash. So I showed him where it was and he took it and put it in his pocket, I think. And then that's where they, they pushed me to my parents' room and asked me where the money was there and I didn't really know. So they kind of like, one was right beside me blocking my way to the door while the other ones turned over the bed to find some more cash in my mom's bedside table in which then they dragged me down the stairs and made me kneel at the bottom, telling me to face down on the floor while the other guy had the gun behind my head and asked my mom where her purse was. My mom kept trying to get up, and they kept telling her sit down, and so I didn't want her to get hurt, so I told her mom to sit down. They were trying to find her wallet, but she, her English thinker, so she kept saying purse. They kept pushing her down onto the chair. Okay. Take your time. Take your time. All this is very important, so take your time. They kept all the lights up on the main floor. The only time there was light was when they opened the fridge door to see if they could find where my mom's purse was. I didn't... At that point, I saw three figures of men. This interview that I just played a clip from is from about three o'clock in the morning after this whole incident had happened. This poor girl. Yes. And they actually do over 10 hours of interrogating Jennifer after this incident. Not all of it is consecutive, but it happens throughout the course of three different interviews. The police even have a secret detail that follows her around, even to her mother's funeral. And They all came back and they said that at her mother's funeral, Jennifer didn't even seem to care. She didn't have any emotion. She didn't have any tears. And it just didn't appear genuine. On that, that frustrates me. And I don't know the rest of the story yet, so I have no idea what's going to happen. But I think everybody emotes their feelings differently. And she is probably emotionally drained at this point. And I do know people, like I have friends and family that I know that literally never cry and never show any emotion. It's not me. It's not Erica. We cry all the time. I don't ever cry. (laughs) No. But, you know, in a lot of cases they do that. They look at how they're acting. And of course, if they're doing something outrageous, like going out and partying after their daughter's missing, that's a little fishier. But I think being kind of like stone is different. 
So this is where my favorite part comes in. The police start analyzing the 911. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) This is a short analysis. I'm not going to go into as much detail as I did with the John Monet case. But the police think that it's super weird that in this, you can hear her dad in the background yell and then go outside. But you could also hear Jennifer upstairs still yelling. So you would think that in a situation like this, he just saw his wife was dead. He's been injured. Wouldn't he go upstairs to check on his daughter? I mean, for me, I can't imagine having any type of rational thought process after witnessing that and being shot in the face neck region. Yeah, I can agree that not having rational thoughts after a situation like that is really reasonable. But the police are actually right in having these suspicions. And four days later, Han survives and actually comes out of his coma. Han is able to then tell the police the full story. Wait, I'm sorry. Before you go there... Where's Felix? Did he come home for all this? Yeah, he came home for the funeral and everything. There's just not a lot of information about Felix at this point. Okay, I just realized we hadn't like, heard his name in a while, so I just wanted to check in there. Yeah, so he was at the funeral. There is a photo of him at the funeral with for his mother, um, and he is home at this time for everything that's going on. Han then decides to sit down with the police and tell them everything that actually happened the night that these three men broke into the home. He drops what is a bombshell, but wasn't a bombshell to the police this time. I have a sneaky suspicion it's not going to go the way I thought it was going to go. Jennifer was, in fact, walking around with the intruders the entire night that all of this was happening. Oh, no. Were they people that she was friends with or something? They were people that she had hired to take out her mother and father. Oh, no. You always got to wonder when there's that one person that survives. And that was what stood out the most to the police. So Abby had actually said to me that she thought that maybe she was thinking that Jennifer was actually the target here because she had survived this incident and that she had been left alive basically to cause more trauma on her. And I think even the police kind of believed that at one point in time, but there were just some things that weren't adding up. Yeah, you never want to believe that someone is really capable of hiring someone to kill their parents. It's just it, like she seems like a sweet, innocent girl. You know, she's, she clearly had that going for her in this situation. And I'm glad you said that because I'm going to disprove everything you just said. Cool. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> now, Erica, I remember you saying something about her parents maybe being a little maybe strict Did that possibly have something to do with it? It did. And that's what I'm going to go into. Jennifer Pan looked innocent and sweet on the outside. But the police were seeing through this fake front that she was putting on. And they start to interrogate her more and more and more. And there are some people that have come forward and said that they don't necessarily agree with the interrogation tactics that were used in getting her to confess to this. They were pretty much just telling her a bunch of lies in order to get her to come forward and admit to what had happened. And including the fact that they were saying that the technology that they were using that was recording her voice was telling them whether or not she was telling the truth and all kinds of different things. What yeah. kind of technology is that? Just the regular old recording system. <laughs> that tells you. Oh, okay. All right. 
And so there is a lot of controversy about it, but it was in Canada, so it's different than what's used in the United States, like what's considered acceptable and everything. And a lot of people agree with these techniques and think that they should be used more often. So is it something similar to like a lie detector test? I think that they somehow made her think that it was a lie detector test, but it wasn't. They were just full on interviewing her, not really using much more technologically advanced microphones than what you and I are currently recording with. Through this interrogation, they start to learn a lot about Jennifer and they learn that she had pretty much been pushed her entire life beyond where she felt comfortable. Han would always tell his daughter that she wasn't good enough and he would constantly force her to put all of her focus on education. He had wanted her to be a doctor and kept pushing this onto her. However, he realized that this wasn't going to be a good path for her because she couldn't stand the sight of blood. She got really queasy with all that stuff. And it's an important thing if you're going to become a doctor to be able to stomach that. So instead, he compromised with his daughter when she said, I don't want to be a doctor. And he said, fine, go to school. You'll be a pharmacologist. So she started studying pharmacology. This plan that Han had would have worked out well and in his mind it was working out well jennifer had been pretending to go to university to study pharmacology jennifer had apparently been making up most of her life she had attended mary ward catholic school for high school and while she was there she ended up failing out of high school and didn't even graduate but her parents didn't know this yeah she was making fake report cards and a fake diploma and just forging everything to show her parents to pretend that she had graduated and that she was an A-plus student and that she was going on to college. She had been offered acceptance to Ryerson University prior to failing out of high school, and she told her parents that she was going to just attend Ryerson University for the first two years, major in science, and they would transfer to the University of Toronto to major in pharmacology. And as far as her parents were aware, that was exactly what she did. She actually went out and bought textbooks, used textbooks, notebooks, everything that you would need for college and would bring it home and pretend that she was going to school. She would leave when she pretended to have class, go work at a restaurant, come back and tell her parents, yeah, this is what I did in class today and just fake the entire thing, make up all the stories. Now, that is a commitment because college books are expensive. Yes, they are so expensive. <laughs> to buy them for not use. I didn't even I didn't even want to buy them for use. Exactly. And she told her parents that she had received enough scholarships that she didn't need any help paying for college and that she was just going to be able to afford it on her own with the money she was making from teaching piano. Another rule that her parents had aside from having a perfect score in class was that she could not attend any high school dances at all. She could not spend time with her friends. And if she was going anywhere with her friends for any short amount of time, her parents would pick her up and drop her off and pretty much to make sure she was doing exactly what they were already aware of. There were a few times that she was allowed to spend the night at friends' houses and they would drop her off at night, basically at bedtime, pick her up early in the morning and take her back home. Not really giving her any time to do anything other than sleep at her friend's house. Were they like this with Felix? Yeah, they were very similar with Felix. I think that Jennifer, I don't know if she just got the brunt end of the deal and it was a little bit worse for her or what it was exactly like for Felix. There's not a ton of information 
on who he is and his life. I would be curious to see some like interviews with him or anything he has to say about it. I think he pretty much just stays out of the media in regards to it. I'll talk about him a little bit more at the end. Another rule that her parents had was that she was not allowed to have any contact with boys at all. But typical teenage girl, she didn't want to listen to that. And she was in the band at her school in high school. And she went with the band to do a performance. And while they were there, she they were performing in a concert hall that was filled with smokers. And she ended up having an asthma attack. And this boy that was also in the band in her class named Daniel Wong ended up consoling her and making sure that she was feeling okay. And this led into a relationship between the two. So when she started attending the University of Toronto to major in pharmacology, air quotes around that whole thing, she convinced her parents to let her stay with her friend named Topaz three nights a week as she lived downtown and it would just make the commute a lot shorter for her to get to the school. Her parents agreed to this and said, you know, it is a long commute. You can stay there Monday through Wednesday. But this entire time, she was, in fact, living with her boyfriend, Daniel, and lying to her parents about it the entire time. So she was living with Daniel and his family and told his family that her parents were totally okay with this situation. And she just kept making up excuses whenever his parents were like, let me meet your parents. And she would just come up with excuse after excuse after excuse. This went on for quite a while, and she pretended to graduate from the University of Toronto and told her parents that her class size was so big that she had only received one ticket for the graduation, and she didn't want to have to choose one of her parents or make her parents choose, and so she ended up just deciding to give the ticket to a friend of hers. Her parents were kind of starting to catch on, though, at this point. They weren't dumb, and she told her parents after she graduated that she was working as a volunteer at Toronto Sick Children Hospital. But her parents started to notice that she didn't have an ID badge. She didn't have a uniform. There wasn't really any signs that she was working there. So they decided to give her a ride to work. And her mom and her dad took her to work. Her mom got out and followed her into the hospital. Jennifer knew her mom had followed her. So she actually hid in the hospital for multiple hours until her parents left. The next day, her parents decided to call Jennifer's friend Topaz and ask about Jennifer staying there. Topaz ended up somehow coming clean and saying that Jennifer had not been staying there and they found out that this whole thing was a lie. They found out that she didn't volunteer at the hospital, she had not been to the University of Toronto, and was staying with Daniel. The other details were left out. The parents didn't find out that she hadn't graduated high school. They didn't find out about the lies with attending Ryerson University at first. And this was enough, though, that her dad was like, I'm just going to kick her out of the house. She can't be here anymore. But her mom was able to convince him that she should be allowed to stay. For the next two weeks, Jennifer was housebound. She couldn't use her phone, computer, nothing. She wasn't allowed to leave. And her parents said, you're not allowed to see Daniel ever again. She was eventually given her phone and computer back, but her parents monitored it frequently. They were aware of everything that was going on. And... Daniel ended up giving her a separate cell phone that she could call people and text people on that wasn't being monitored. And that was how she spoke with Daniel still. Her dad went as far as monitoring her odometer to make sure she was honest about where she was going when she would go to piano lessons to teach. One night, she ended up sneaking out to visit Daniel and decided that she was going to pull the old trick where you put the pillows under the blanket to try to trick your parents if they come in. 
which I feel bad for her because at this point she's 23 and she's an adult and she's still having to hide her entire life. But she forgot that she had her mother's wallet. So the next morning her mom comes upstairs to grab it and realizes that the lump under the blankets is not her daughter. So her parents call her and made her come home immediately. And at this point, Daniel's really just tired of the relationship because he's tired of everything being a lie. He's tired of Jennifer not being able to just be with him and having to lie about everything and be so sneaky. And so he tells her that she just needs to figure out her her life and they're breaking up. Jennifer did not like this. And shortly after, Daniel got in a relationship with another girl. And I came across two names when I was reading this. So when I was researching this, so Christine or Katrina. And Jennifer ended up making up this entire story because of Daniel's new girlfriend. And she makes up this story saying that a guy had entered her house showing her a badge that appeared to be for the police. And then he pushed in the door with several other males and they all gang raped her. And this was the story that she decided to tell Daniel. And she insisted that this was because of his new girlfriend. She also said that she had received a bullet in the mail after this and told Daniel that his new girlfriend said it. And this was the exact message that she sent. Quote, forward this to Christine. Forward this to Christine. Congratulations to you and your friends for winning and putting me through not only emotional pain, but physical. They raped me and beat me. And yet you win the only person that meant anything to me. Please just tell these people to leave me alone so that I may rest in peace and so that I may go easy. I have suffered enough and I don't want to suffer in my last days. Good luck and take care of Daniel for me. He is everything to me, but sadly, I was never enough for him to love. End quote. So that text message makes a lot of accusations. None of those happened, correct? Correct. None of it was ever corroborated that the rape or anything had happened. Something else that sticks out to me is that she says my last couple of days. Was she planning a suicide or did this happen shortly before the attack on her parents? So I couldn't find exactly when it happened. I don't know what she was referring to in this exact moment, I guess. I don't know if she was trying to get them to feel sorry for her and maybe Daniel to feel a little worried that she was maybe going to kill herself and it was more just like a cry for help or if it was actually something that she was considering doing. So going off of that, while they're interviewing Jennifer, she realizes that the police have caught her in a lie and that none of this is making sense and she's like we just really need to or she's like I think she just decides it's probably time for me to tell the truth so she tells detective Bill Gates that she's gonna say the entire truth he's everywhere man yeah so she's like I'm gonna say everything I'm gonna tell the entire truth and she goes it was supposed to be me the hit was supposed to be me that I paid for I was so upset that I couldn't see Daniel and I had tried to commit suicide many times and it just kept failing. And so I thought that this would be a surefire way for me to be taken out. But instead, they took out my mom. It sounds a little fishy. I don't feel like... Actually, (laughs) there is a story that I was thinking about covering where a hitman accidentally got the wrong person in town, but they had the same name at least. I feel like if you're hiring a hitman to come kill you... I feel like it's a big difference to, you know, killing you and falling through if that's what was supposed to happen, as opposed to tying you up 
and then going down and kill trying to kill your parents. Exactly. And the police saw right through it. So they're like, no, come on. That's not the truth. Be honest with us. And she's like, okay, fine. Here's the real truth. I hired them to come and kill my parents, but I had a change of heart and I called the hit off and they wanted a cancellation fee of $10,000 and I just didn't have it. And so they still came and they still killed my parents. Hitman have um, cancellation fees? That seems odd. I agree. So she had already paid them $10,000 to do the hit. But maybe I've never hired a hitman or met one. So I guess I don't know if they have a cancellation fee. That doesn't make any sense if she'd already paid them and they had the money. I don't think they would be like, nope, cancellation fee. They'd be like, oh, cool. We just got handed $10,000 to do nothing if she actually did call it off, supposedly. So at this point, they're bringing Daniel in to get his side of the story and to see kind of what's going on. I don't know whether who was, who was behind it, right? I just know that her parents didn't want us to be, her family didn't want us to be together. And she loved you like you would love anybody. Yeah. Right? She loved you and it would do anything for you. Yeah. Right? And she's just like, the way I got it. So I'm going to go back a little bit and I'm actually going to tell you a little bit about Daniel because I kind of... I briefly talked about him, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more. Daniel was a well-known drug dealer in his town. And through this part-time job that he was doing, he had met some people that weren't super great. As you do in that line of business sometimes. Correct. So he had actually met some different men that their part-time job was being hitmen. So they were somebody that you could hire if you needed somebody to be taken out. And he decided to have Jennifer get in contact with them so that Jennifer could take her parents out because it was something that they had previously discussed was, if we take your parents out, we can be together. And while that seems kind of really random, when her dad had found out about Daniel and Jennifer's relationship, he gave Jennifer an ultimatum. And he said, you either stop seeing Daniel or you can continue seeing him if you move out of my house or if I'm dead. So she made her choice. And Not the best choice and not the choice that I think a lot of people would go with, but it was the choice that Jennifer Pan made. So now I'm going to tell you how the hit became a thing, how it was all planned and what Jennifer did from her end. In the spring of 2010, so months before this even had happened, Jennifer had reconnected with a friend from school named Andrew Montemayor. Andrew had kind of bragged earlier to Jennifer about some different things And he had said that he had robbed some people at knife point in the park near his home. And Jennifer kind of took this to her advantage. And she was like, you know what? If he's this type of person, then he might come in handy. And so she confronted him and talked about how her dad and her had like a really strained relationship. And he was very strict and things weren't super great. And so she talked to him about that. And Andrew said, oh, well, I just killed my father when he bothered me like that. And so Jennifer was like, oh, might as well do the same thing. Jennifer said that at this point, Andrew had introduced him to his roommate, Ricardo Duncan. And Jennifer and Andrew and Ricardo had come up with a plan to kill her dad. And the plan was for Ricardo to end up attacking her father in the parking lot of his work and killing him there. She claims that she gave $1,500 to Ricardo 
and that was money that she had made from teaching piano classes and they had agreed to connect later by phone to arrange the date and time of hit but ricardo just stopped answering the phone calls stopped letting jennifer contact him and i assume took the money and run basically yeah and he took the money and ran and ricardo talks about this in court so does andrew and andrew says i never claimed to have killed my father or to have stabbed any random people she just came to me about wanting to kill her parents was his father still alive i don't know honestly i'm assuming he was still alive but ricardo says that jennifer had called him in early july and she was super hysterical and she was like come kill my parents right now basically begging him to come do it and he said no and the only money that she had ever given him was two hundred dollars and that was when they were going out for a night and he said that he gave the money back to her so he's like i never ran off with this fifteen hundred dollars that's just a story that she made up i don't know who i believe in this situation i mean obviously she carried it out later on Yeah, I think I would be interested in finding out his past and seeing if he had crimes in it and if any story could even be remotely true or not. I agree. So at this point, Jennifer is like, I still want to kill my parents. I want them out of the picture so that I can be with Daniel. So she gets a hold of Daniel and Daniel's like, look, I know some guys. Let's contact them. We can do this. She gets in contact with these guys and their names are David Milvaganim. Eric Sean Sniper Cardi and Lenford Roy Crawford. And she got in contact with them and said, look, I need you to kill my parents. I need you to take this head out and just get rid of them. And they're like, all right, $10,000 and it's yours. And she's like, okay. So she pays them $10,000 to come take out her parents. So if you remember correctly, I said Daniel gave her a cell phone so that she could communicate with him since she wasn't allowed to on her own phone. And Daniel and her were communicating that way and that's how she was communicating with the hitman about this night that they had planned and when police are interviewing her they ask like where's this phone and she's like oh well I I lost the sim card to it a couple days ago and they're like um well where's the like how'd you lose the sim card she's like I had the sim card in my pocket and it fell out and they're like Mm-hmm. We've, we've got some questions and then they were like we'll just like go through the phone records and stuff and she's like you can do that like she had no idea and so they go through the phone records and they find hundreds of texts between her daniel and the hitman about this night and all of the planning including text messages from that same day of her saying i'll unlock the door for you i'll make sure that you can come in we're still a go and confirming the entire thing which completely gets rid of her story that where she said that she was trying to cancel this hit because that's obviously not what she was doing one of the texts of her confirming it says quote i need time of completion think about it game time november 8th end quote so there was some surveillance video that you could be seeing from across the street that saw a vehicle approaching the house and then three men get out and go into the home They also see a light in the upstairs window that is flashed on and off. And the police believe that that is a signal for the hitman to know that you can come in now. There's also a text that was sent from Jennifer's phone right around the exact same time that the light is going off. And the text says, quote, VIP access, end quote. And the police believe that this is Jennifer saying you can come into the house. 
They end up finding out through interviewing Jennifer that when she had gone downstairs to say goodnight to her mother, she had gone and unlocked the front door to allow the hitman to come in, which explained why the police were not able to find any signs of forced entry. Jennifer was then arrested for attempting to kill her dad and killing her mother. When the guilty verdict was delivered, it was said that Jennifer showed absolutely no emotion, but then apparently after the press had left the courtroom, somebody reported that she did weep uncontrollably. Jennifer was charged with first-degree murder and received an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years for the murder of her mother. And for the attempted murder of her father, she received another life sentence to be served concurrently with the first sentencing. Two of the gunmen that were involved and Daniel also were sentenced to life in prison. And the third gunman pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder. Jennifer's dad, Han, and her brother, Felix, put a protective order against themselves and a non-communication order, so she's not allowed to speak with anyone in her family ever again. Jennifer is currently serving time at Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. I'm going to briefly talk about why we were referring to Bick and Han as tiger parents. Amy Chow wrote a book titled The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, and she's kind of the one that really coined the term tiger parents this is a quote from her book quote tiger parenting is based in asian values of independence and emphasizes creating a strong and committed relationship between parent and child end quote and the book is kind of it talks about amy chow and how she once told her four-year-old daughter to remake a birthday card because it didn't meet her standards and it wasn't good enough and i just think that maybe that's a little bit harsh for a four-year-old but also i mean the real world is kind of harsh I think you have to try to find this in between between trying to want what's best for your child and also letting your child decide what's best for them. Tiger parenting is described as a little bit more warmth than the authoritarian style because the parents with tiger parenting will still sit with their child and help them succeed when they're trying to do homework instead of just like more yelling at them and directing them with what to do. But they're still kind of missing some of that warmth that you can find in other parents. There are approximately 250 cases each year, according to Dr. Lou Schlesinger, where a child ends up killing their parents in the United States, and that's including adult children. And I just think that that's a crazy high number. I can understand how it happens if you are raising a kid and maybe sometimes putting on certain pressures, I want to say. It obviously also could kind of depend on the kid or the person and where their mindset is and, you know, what capability their brain has to handle these kind of emotions and that suppressions and what have you. Yes. And Dr. Lou Schlesinger actually said there's about three reasons that kids are going to kill their parents. The one of them is going to be if the child was abused, they would possibly kill their parent that abused them. Another would be if the child had a severe mental illness that caused that. And the third and final being antisocial thinking, which is where he thinks that Jennifer falls into. And that one is going to be where the child might want more money or doesn't like the control coming from the parent. I think with Jennifer, it was kind of a combination of the two as her and Daniel's plan was to, after her parents were dead, they were going to get together. Jennifer was going to inherit about $500,000 and then Jennifer and Daniel were just going to move into the home that her parents had lived in and they were just going to be set for life. If you want to know more about the case, you guys, there's a book titled A Daughter's Deadly Deception by Jeremy Grimaldi and he does his own research and 
he's actually in a lot of the documentaries where he talks about it too. So you can go and read his book if you want. But I'm going to end with a quote that came from Jennifer's dad, Han, after she was sentenced. Quote, when I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I am dead too. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.